everybody and welcome to tonight's MHTV. Tonight we've got with us um, Beverly Powell, who is a, an equality, diversity and inclusion specialist, leadership coach and forthcoming author. In a minute, I'll go over to Beverly, who will say a little bit about herself. But first, I'm going to go over to Nikki to explain how you can join in tonight. Yeah, we really want to hear from you. And I'm sure Beverly wants all your questions as well. So if you are following us on X, stroke Twitter, um, follow us under the hashtag hashtag MHTV, and put your questions there. We'll see them and we'll feed them in. Otherwise, if you're on the Facebook Live pages now, feel free just to type in and we'll pass things across. Thank you very much. Back to Vanessa. Lovely. Thank you. So, um, so Beverly, just over to you, really, first of all, just to say a few words. I know tonight we're going to be talking about your personal and your professional journey, which I'm sure lots of people will be really interested in. So do you want to just start by saying a few things about yourself? Oh, well, um, first of all, I'd like to say that I'm delighted to be here. How exciting and honoured to um, to be in this space with yourselves. So, yeah, thank you very much. Um, a little bit about me. Perhaps useful if I set some context about uh, mm. a little bit about my identity, actually. Yeah. So, um, I am from Greater Manchester, actually Lancashire. And I am the eldest daughter of Jamaican parents. Um, we settled in Lancashire, and my family settled in Lancashire. And my grandfather arrived first from Jamaica, um, and that was in the late 50s. So um, I was around without sharing my age too much. But yeah, mm. so I was uh, around in the cotton mills. I'm from Fred Dibner country, Bolton. Um, mm. So that really set the scene for me. So hence my accent. So really, um, multiple identities, really. I'm British. I'm Jamaican. Um, I am African of African descent. Uh, my ancestry, uh, my ancestors are from slavery. So 250 years of shackled slavery. Um, and that still lives through me, in me. Um, and I bring a lot of... Um, wisdom sage wisdom from my father mother grandmother um, and the like so um yeah so i arrived in the into the nhs 2009 and i left to manchester and came further up north hmm. also horrors of family leaving family and coming up north um, hmm. and i came up north and i have never gone back <laughs> so i'm here within the nhs and i'm um, enjoying life um in in uh, yorkshire that's me <laughs> yeah yorkshire is the best place to live i'm sure nikki would debate that but <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean i think it's really interesting as well isn't it to think about um people's identities and histories both in terms of the people that we that we look after and the people who work in our services and um, I think for me, only recently, really, that it feels like that we've really started to make some progress with that. I don't know what you think. Um, I guess it's different in different organisations. but Yeah, I think there's something really important about um, identity. And I know the I, I really take on uh, what the Greek philosophers um, talk about, or one of the Greek philosophers, I don't know if it's Socrates or Pythagoras, but it's about knowing yourself know thyself so I think it's really important that you know yourself I mean as I'm here with you in this space I will be deemed as, as a black woman and even the term black 
is socially constructed. So when mm. we think about how we uh, differentiate each other and demarcate each other and the impacts of that has, but there's something equally, some depth about knowing knowing thyself, know thyself, um, and mm. not wearing this cloak of uh, being a black woman and playing into the narratives or feeding into the narrative. So there's something about socially constructed identity and there's something yeah. about um, knowing thyself from the inner which is the work I'm doing from the inner self and knowing myself and um, celebrating myself, actually. So mm-hmm. there's something about celebrating myself, uh, giving myself permission to celebrate myself. And also recently what I um, learned, developed, is to celebrate being perfectly imperfect. I've lived mm-hmm. a life of trying to be perfect. And by whose standards, by whose system standards, so there's something mm. about um, standards, system thinking, um, and being minoritized by others. Where actually, I am part of the global ma- majority. Yeah. So I'm yeah. part of the global majority, but in some cases, I'm still deemed as being a minority. So actually, when we talk about these things, it has an impact on the psyche. Mm. And a big impact on the psyche. So there's something about yeah, knowing, <clears throat> knowing thyself, which is why I'm really diving into this, particularly over the last couple of years, I would say during COVID, just before COVID, mm. it's like I probably had a, a second awakening, the Greek call, um, the menopause, second spring. And I think all these ideas and things that have come to me has been in my second spring, as the mm. Chinese call it. So, yeah, yeah. So I am celebrating being perfectly imperfect, my creativity, my yeah. inner identity, and me. <laughs> yes, I love it. And for people who are listening tonight, what what helped you, um, I guess, burn your superhero cloak as well, as we're going to hear about in a minute, but what helped you come to that realisation? Because I think that lots of people struggle with that, don't they, particularly in the professional lives? Yeah, it's not easy. Um, I guess when I reflect on the various roles I've had, it's been very formulaic. So I spent some time working in the police service for Mm. 14 years. Again, structure systems, ways of being and to assimilate. And then I worked in the prison service. And invited to lead in the prison service after the untimely murder of the Muslim teenager Zaid Mubarak and the Home Office recommendation. So again, um, think about the structures and the hierarchies and things. Um, and I think I just got on with it, which is yeah. the yeah, I, I just got on with it. And then I realised time is marching on. Mm, I'm getting yeah. into my second spring, and I'm thinking, well, actually getting into reflecting and the more I've wrote and journaled and just reflected and discovered an alternative practice for myself as part of my self-care in this second spring and I think these things as a I suppose when you think about a spring it starts as a little a little spring and then it just you know and it just happened like that and it just it grew you know quite organic really so I think it wasn't a case of waking up in the morning and suddenly this is what's going to happen. But I think there was probably a number of signs and things. And I think my body actually said, this is what's happening. So you can either choose to do go that way or that way. 
and I started to explore uh, a change in diet, the way that I eat, the way that I sleep, and all these things required an element of um, selfishness, actually, instead yeah. of the older sister giving to everything, being to everybody. It required me to really be introspective and look at self um, and think long-term around that. So I think it was that series of events that caused me to really focus on um, uh, doing me, yeah. being me, doing me and being happy with me and not trying to fit into these all these moles over the years I've tried to. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've got there. So meditation and a variety of different things which um, I've journaled and now I'm translating into my book on a number of areas and a couple of principles which have um, really helped to shape me as I go along. It may not work for everybody, but equally there's something about um, the, the African female author, Nigunda Adichie, Chimonda Adichie, and she um, she talks about the single the danger of the single story. Um, she's on TED Talks, and she talks about um, when she first went to university in England, and the experiences and the expectations that people had because she came from Africa, and, mm. and actually the the outcome of that story is there is the danger of the single story. So whilst I'm sharing my story. As a, as a Jamaican woman, as somebody from brought up in Lancashire, um, and the very um, twists and turns I've had, this is my story, and it would yeah. be totally different to somebody else's. But we can fall into the trap of assimilating, and we lose our identity, and we just see the outer shell of people. Mm -hmm. And that's why I just felt, I need to capture this. I need to write it down. I need to journal. I need to articulate this. What would I... If I was my younger self, I would want to read a book to hear about these twists and turns and how I've how the author has navigated life in the black body, in yeah. the black body, uh, and how has she navigated that and how she got to where she is. Um, and there wasn't such a book, so I decided to write it. The black author, black American author, Toni Morrison said, if you want to write a book and you don't see any book, that is uh, tells your story, then write it. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to looking forward to reading it. I mean, there's so much there, isn't there? Where do we start? Both in terms of, you know, what you were talking about, telling your story, but also the way that the different elements of our identity um, intersect, and the way we can be many things, can't we? And I was thinking about um, came to me a memory that when I first started going to work in a female prison, and um, the first thing I saw was um, a leaflet by a really well-known um, black male boxer who um, had um, had put a leaflet, which was really nice in some ways. You know, it was a message of hope. But I looked at it and I thought to myself, interesting. This message just does not apply at all in a female prison because there's something about gender um that that's kind of missed missed in, entirely and I think I think what you're saying yeah it really strikes a chord with me really about us needing to look more from that intersectional lens really and, and understand people from a variety of different perspectives and the experiences people have had of course which are all entirely different yeah, and, and there's a lot to be said. And, and one of the things that I saw, particularly during the George Floyd era, 
is that there we have more in common than we have which separates us. And I'll never forget seeing um it was um an image in America and it was all women all linking white women all linking each other the police were facing them white women was all linking each other and the black women was at the back so it was womanhood joining ranks and supporting womanhood and supporting yeah. the black women and really putting themselves on the line and often we forget and we're so busy looking at the things that divide us when there's so much that that brings us together so I, I tend to like to look at um from that perspective you know, I'm not silly enough to think that uh, there are other things, but you can choose to focus on one element of life or you can choose to focus on another element of life. And I guess that's become more apparent for me over the years. Um, and then that links into well-being. So, um, so many of my community have struggled over the years in terms of mental health. Mm. Um, we haven't had the facilities to really understand mental health from the lens of race yeah and yeah. um a book I, I haven't quite finished reading it's quite a rich book but mm. it was recommended to me by a black female psychotherapist uh the book was by resma Menikan called my grandmother's hands beautiful book and talks mm. about historically takes you back into history mm. and talks about um you know, the trauma that we have, or particularly from the black body, is yeah. sort of 14 ancestors. We'll go back to ancestors. It's 14, 15 years steps back. And when we think about pregnancy, um, you know, if your mother was traumatised, then, you know, the blood and everything else, the oxygen and everything, you're going to get that. And if she was, so it's there. So we can't discount um, trauma. We've got yeah. trauma now, but there's trauma historically and how the impact that can have when it manifests itself and then other things that pile on. So I'm quite mindful and it just took me back to understanding trauma and the black body of trauma yeah. as well. You know, as you said, Vanessa, you talk, you referred back to your career working in the prison and uh, I probably didn't realise it until I left the prison, but because I was so much into doing the job and doing what I needed to do. But the prison population was 30% that looked like me, 30% black men. Yeah. And I'm there with a bunch of keys and in this position of leadership and power, you know, and you think about all of those dynamics and the yeah. experiences that you see, you hear, uh, because you're a prisoner yourself in that, that confinement, actually. And you think about that, um, and I think there's something really important in terms of what I've learned recently of, um, is to listen to the body. Mm. So I've learned I'm very comfortable with silence. Some people aren't. But listening to the body, what is my body saying? What's my inner child trying to say? How does it feel when I read something or see something? So I'm allowing my body to speak where before I would override that into the ego and do something else or be be busy 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 and now I've yeah. learned to slow down and let the body speak or let the inner child speak and I don't think I've ever done that before um and it's tough it's hard and I think this is where you've mentioned the book Vanessa and I think that's where yeah. it's come from um this notion about the clock and uh, burning my superwoman cape you know, from an early age, I wore the cape 
I had a cave and I was thinking of that analogy of a cave. The cave protects you from so many things and I wore that cape of assimilation. I wore the cape of protecting my emotions, not showing any emotions, just doing what was required of me and the expectations from society, from family, all those things, first-generation Jamaicans, um, what they would tell you, all those things, having to work twice as hard, I was told, than my white counterparts, whatever you do. So that was setting the scene at a very early age. And, and that is no shade on my family. That is how they how they lived and this a level of protection around that. And we mm. can only, you know, see that um where we are today. So for years and years I, I wore a cloak of that. So that meant I really didn't know myself because I was so busy trying to fit in, accommodate, please people, possibly have no boundaries. Yeah, yeah. Had no boundaries. And then suddenly the menopause came and gave me some boundaries. Yeah. <laughs> Forced yeah. me to have some boundaries. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? I mm. think a lot of people will relate to that as well. And I think there is um, a culture of that as well in the health service. So I think that would be an additional layer to it, the, the sense that we're, we're healers and helpers to other people. And in order to do that, we have to... Um, have these sort of resilient, perfect um, lives and and be particular people. And then, as we know, so many people burn out at some point from that process. But it's really interesting to hear you talk about it from a growth perspective, I think, as well, and a healing perspective. That's what I pick up from from what what you're saying. Whereas I think for a lot of people listening, and people don't always realise, do they, that the, I know for you, you've just said that the menopause was the turning point, but I don't think people always realise that they're getting to that point, really, and that, you know, people don't always take a step back, do they, and think about how they need to start protecting themselves and, um, you know, ha- having some, you know, time to care for themselves, really. And and as you say, to to remove the cape and be yourself and be authentic as well. So I think it's a really important um, message, definitely. And Nikki, I know you're um, nodding away there. So do you want to come in at this point? Then, if, then. I am busy typing and um, <laughs> tweeting all the really good like book suggestions, quotes, getting them out there. Um, yeah. The thing I've, that's come through so far is people asking a little bit about your experience of leadership. Particularly yeah. as a black woman, so that would be interesting. I think if we could talk a little bit about that. I don't know if you want to do that yet, or perhaps a little bit later on. But I think that's something that's showing some, people got some interest in that, particularly understanding yeah. it. Yeah, I think the menopause just came, came, just just arrived, and I was working in a provider trust, so I was busy, yeah. busy, busy, and I didn't have the time for menopause. Menopause, I'm busy, so, yeah, so busy, busy, being yeah. busy, busy, busy. That this this thing that just suddenly came up on me um really forced me to um yeah uh, make account of myself and then um probably 12 18 months later I had my very first panic attack and I thought I was having a heart attack I've never experienced anything like it and it happened at work um Mm. it was just an awful feeling and it was just a mixture of embarrassment because I thought I was having a heart attack and I had to go into another room. I was opening the window to get fresh air. I just didn't know what to do with myself. And a colleague of mine rushed me to the um, an A&E walk-in centre in the city. 
And uh, the GP said to me, what are you doing? And I explained to her I'd just moved house. I was moving house on my own. I was still yeah. working. I was studying. Mm-hmm. And she just shook her head. She said, you're not having a heart attack. She said, you're doing too much. Yeah. You're doing too much. And just, you know, told me to go home um, and just lie down. It was So that, again, was another message and another awakening there that, come on, Beverly, you need to really look after you and stop doing things for everybody else and being busy, busy, busy. So, yeah, I've never experienced that before. And what I'm understanding from many uh, women, um, high-profile women, those who are day-to-day women like myself, uh, panic attacks seem to be quite common. And they come just just come on you from nowhere. So there's something about my practice my personal practice and things that I start to do to manage me and steady me, which is, which is great, but I never had to do. So it's just been a whole new way of working. And as a leader, it's a whole new way of being. And what I felt is uh, being my authentic self has allowed me and give myself permission to be me instead of wearing this cloak of being invincible and I can do everything and pushing through and expecting everyone to push through being the role model and then going home and absolutely collapsing <laughs> until the next day. So I've really, um, those are the things that I've done in terms of my leadership style. Um, it's more about having self-compassion, actually. There's something yeah. about giving myself grace when, if I do something wrong, learning to laugh at myself as well. For years, I took myself too seriously because the world took the woman black woman in a black body seriously you know if you did something wrong it was bigger than anybody else or if you laughed it was too you, all wherever you turned it was just you know all eyes on and I've learned to just give myself grace give myself permission and uh, in turn my leadership style has changed I'm more about compassion and grace yeah. and particularly during COVID and seeing lots of colleagues like myself, a uh, higher representation, um, no longer with us, um, and interviewing nurses of colour was on the front line to understand from a um, frame to speak or guardian, I was tasked to do a piece of work nationally, um, looking at our frontline nurses, I was looking at PPE, um, and what nurses are on the front line, and all those things. These were just signs about things that we, the system, have to do things, but things that we need to do as well. It's something about being boundaried. It's no harm, I've learned, in saying no. And saying no is uh, reclaiming me. So what I found is this thing about having being more boundaried as a leader, having more compassion and grace and putting myself first is, I felt it's been something around liberation. I've actually felt it's weird, but I've I've liberated myself because I've given myself permission. It's okay, and it's okay to rest, and it's okay to be and do nothing. Where I had to be busy at the weekend, I had to be doing or doing something and being busy. But sitting there is um is just an act of liberation. And as Audrey Lord, the famous black uh black woman feminist, talks about. Radical self-care is an act of liberation. She said political warfare, but I would say it's an act of liberation, just liberating myself. And what I found is when I've done that, 
and going into understanding racial trauma and psychotherapy, when I do that, I know that my ancestors are resting because they could never rest on the plantation. They were going, going, going all the time. And what I understand is when you rest, your ancestors are able to rest as well. So, yeah, mm. it's a bit I deep, will... but that's where I am. <laughs> and, yeah, powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Nikki? Yeah, I think a lot of what you're saying, particularly about the way that black women are subjected to a totally different scrutiny. Like you say, no, you're angry. So that's not what just happened. And then also this expectation that somehow they'll tolerate more or work harder or do more. And like, why? Why? Yeah. And it kind of yeah. almost plays in. I think so you get this a lot sometimes in nursing and health and social care. It almost plays into your sense of self like oh I can manage I can do more I and maybe you can but like don't <laughs> don't do more what do you think about that those sorts of it's so true images? and there is the narrative which is wrapped around mm. black women yeah. and then there's two sides of what I'm hearing from colleagues globally over the world so there's lots of black American women who are in the hustle culture trying to achieve doing this yeah. doing that and then there's another group community of black women who are saying actually um there's a book i've forgotten the author's name called the nap ministry um the nap ministry and um it's okay to rest and get off the treadmill i call it um so my black colleagues laugh at me when i say this but i say i'm getting off the plantation because i often feel systems are like the plantation for me you know you've got the whoever's at the top it doesn't tend to reflect me at the top you do these mm. things and in return it's transactional you get your salary mm. and you do these things and you run yourself down to the ground mm. because um you want to achieve and when I think about it as a young as a little girl mm. I was told that whatever yeah. you do you've got to work twice so the scene yeah. was set mm. for me yeah. being in this black body that I knew being in this black body I've got to push myself and work twice as hard to be accepted mm. even going to school I remember my family mother saying you know even when you go to school your uniform you've got to look twice as smart just to be treated the same so she wasn't yeah. saying ego led to be better than but yeah. whatever you do to be and I thought years later I'm coming off this plantation mm. I don't want it mm. I don't whose life am I living mm. For everybody else. And this is why the book, I, I called it um, Burning My Superwoman Cape, because mm. this narrative about the black woman, she's working shifts when I've seen it in different systems. They're working mm. shifts, the, the mm. tw- uh, quick changeover patterns. They've got children, the child minding, the cooking, the cleaning, um, all yeah. these things. And then there's this narrative. And it mm. worries me because when yeah. I think about trauma over the years and mm. when I think about um some of the experiments that was conducted yeah. on the plantation they were conducted on on black women yeah because we were deemed as um not having a higher pain threshold yeah. so there was lots of gynecological tests and things yeah. on on black women um mm. and they'd be tested before they would be, mm. uh, become I don't know pain sensitive or tested on the white woman mm. and I think this narrative can continue and the experiences um certainly uh from colleagues i know of of color and friends and family members in terms of being a patient that we have a higher pain threshold 
So we may not need A, B or C when my white patient may need it. So we are still seen as being strong. And and that has been used as a compliment to me. And I have to say I'm not a fan of it because yeah. I am humanity, the same as everybody else. I'm as strong as anybody else. Yeah. And I bleed. I can cry. Yep. It's about yeah. feeling safe. And mm. it's for me in, that, in my black body, you know, where can I feel safe mm. to, to be me? Because this narrative is, you know, you're strong. So suddenly if you bust out crying, they probably want to section you because, oh, my God, you know, this a black woman upset is crying. So it's just a totally different lens. Mm. And as we know, there's uh, lots of books about white fragility. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the fragility yeah. white women can cry. Black women can't, or if we cry, it's deemed in a, in a different way. Uh, mm. We see it so, so many times uh, mm. around that. And in work situations, as a coach, I've heard that um, being played out to me around yeah. white colleagues or white mm. women um, being fragile. And there's a book there about mm. you know, why mm. I'm no longer talking to white people about race. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's all those things, which is, you know, mm. it, it's just time to rest. Yeah. I am in my spring, second spring. Yeah. And it's well, so many things you're saying. So many oh, things. Yeah. The first thing that comes to my mind is this idea about how hard it is for first generation parents. And sometimes the things they do to protect their children, to prepare their children. Because yeah. that's what you want, isn't it? You want to keep your kids safe. So all the yeah. things they build around second generation children, or children born in this country or growing up in this culture, to try and protect them can be things that actually later on need discarding yeah. and that's a really yeah. tough situation to be in it's exactly um what was happening there for my family they were protecting and having yeah. those conversations this Absolutely. is what you've got to do so mm. really you could say survival technique this is what you've got to do to to survive without being blatant about it to to, to survive but also what i saw from my family and that i'm so grateful that my family were workers so I, I saw a household where they were working. They were, she was going, to, mother was going to night school. She was mm. doing this, she was doing that, always working, always working. And so mm. that work ethic was born into all of us, um, mm. the work ethic. So I saw that, that's mm. what happened. But again, mm. I can't say it's from ancestors, but all my ancestors have been at yeah. it. <laughs> They've been at it, granddad, father, everybody. We've mm. all been, so it's just that work ethic. Mm, but you, know, yeah. you keep running and you keep running and then when you mm. sometimes you don't know how to stop and that's where the body you know mm. in a child or somebody yeah. needs to stop and listen but you're still mm. on that trajectory all the time mm. so mm. this is where I'm mm. finding time now to to be just be and enjoy mm. the creative side which is I think my soul mm, my yeah. soul is is um allowing my soul so being in in nature, gardening, cooking, journaling, meditation, uh, being, mm. just being, um, mm. and just slowing down the pace of life mm. is, um, you know, it's mind, body and soul for me. That's mm. that's where I am at the moment, which yeah. is what, why I was inspired with the book. Yeah. yeah. And, you, and it sounds almost like you're kind of recovering your sense of self as well, because this pain that constantly, particularly women of colour, women of colour in those kind of exposed leadership roles, where it's like if if a, if a man fails then it's just a you know it's one of those things where if, if a woman fails particularly a black woman fails it's like look we always said they couldn't do it and you're like that's so unfair that's just that's not yeah. what we've learned here 
self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. and all those things, yeah. which is why I recently was invited to do a presentation at the London Region, NHS London Region conference mm. on um, the imposter syndrome. So clearly it was a big mm. ask and it was for women of colour. Mm. I talked about the imposter syndrome. Um, yeah. and there's something about programming, how we've been programmed yeah. through media, what we see, um, all those things. So there's a lot of deprogramming. So when I took the cloak off, there's yeah. something about deprogramming, but also yeah. I also put in the book, there's a health warning here. You just take away the cloak and then you've got years and years of this stuff. So you can't just uh, expect to suddenly switch it on and deprogram. You've got years of work to go through. So what yeah. I found as a coach, coaching others, they can only go so far in terms of goal setting because they haven't done the inner work and the self-belief and the deprogramming of all that stuff. So there's something yeah. really, we can talk about coaching, but there's a lot of deep inner work that needs to be done. Um, I mean, obviously I'm talking from the lens of a woman and of race, but that would be to anybody yeah. really. Um, you've got to really know yourself and, and yeah. know that you, it's it's possible. I mean, I don't even like the word imposter syndrome because it's it, it, it denotes a medical model and I don't believe it isn't a medical model. It's just uh, some yeah. way that we may have been programmed through things we've seen, read, and it's just been fed into us year after year after year, and we sort of start to live it and embody it. So yeah. when we decide, no, enough is enough, there's something about how do I unpick that yeah. over years and years, and what level of support do I need to do, to, to do that as well? Because some of it's pretty painful. There's some of that stuff that's been hiding under my cloak for, for many years, some mm. of that stuff that I've refused to, to revisit. But in order for me to get into my second spring and enjoy it, it's something mm. about taking away the claw and recognising that I am perfectly imperfect and enjoying yeah. life as it, as it is and just giving myself that permission, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think so. And I think there's strength in vulnerability as well, isn't there? And that's kind of a really important message as well, that, you know, being able to show vulnerability is actually much being much stronger and much braver than not being able to show any vulnerability. And I was thinking as well, as you were talking about post-traumatic growth, because we've talked about you know, ancestral trauma and we've talked about having to be a particular way, but now turning the superhero, superwoman cloak, it's kind of all that's come, coming away now, but actually that there's a strength in that, isn't there? And there's, there's growth from that. And I think, again, it's a powerful message for people listening but it's also about thinking about the next generation after you now isn't it that you'll be giving a different message to the next generation to what your your ancestors gave you and and you know I, I've got an increasing interest in sort of epigenetics and the concept that we can change our, our genetics can't we as well and you know the trauma that we've experienced we can change it through our experiences yeah, yeah, I'm a big yeah. fan of epigenetics as well. So we can either, or I can choose to live the life of um, my ancestors in slavery, or I can choose mm. to um, outsource some of the external stimuli, which is through social mm. media and all the rest of the stuff, and outsource that. I don't need that anymore. And look within and start to heal. Um, and it's quite healing as well um, because it, 
all this stuff is pervasive. I mean, I'm a child of the, probably give my age, a child of the 60s. So I was around before the Race Relations Act. So mm. some of the experiences I had is, can't be mentioned, but I can choose to be a victim or choose to uh, move away from that and use some of that um, mm. to help mm. others in terms of that. So, um, and, and when I do that, I found that to be quite healing as well. So I use some of those experiences mm. around that um, to serve humanity. You know, I, I always believe that anybody leading the ED yeah. and I, it's a piece of humanity, humanitarian work. It is humanitarian. It cuts across everybody. Mm. And, and it is the humanitarian work in whichever shape or form. So for me, this book is around leadership legacy. And, and that's been, that term can often be scoffed because people think, oh, you only write it. Are you doing something because you're, you're dying? Well, actually... No, and I think that came to light more. I was listening to um, Oprah Winfrey <laughs> some while ago in a conversation. She was talking about her story, her story over the years. Leadership legacy is, we've all got that, and it's for everybody we've touched. That's a legacy. Every conversation we've had with people over the years, how we've left them, you know, as Gandhi says, be the person we want yeah. to be. That's yeah. legacy. Every conversation, every place that we've worked, that's our legacy, our leadership leadership legacy. So as a leader, I'm leading in a new, within a new era, a new era of me, my second spring, and a new era um, of this chaotic world. I can no longer lead the way I used to do 10, 15 years ago. It's not appropriate. It wouldn't yeah. fit. So my leadership style is different. Yeah. And I guess because I'm doing the inner work, there's something about I'd like to think that my leadership style is um, slightly, is, is different. Yeah. I've got a couple of questions come through. Yeah. Um, so yeah, one is... I suppose um, on that. Sorry. We, we're, so, we're so close to like 40 minutes now. I've just oh. got a couple of questions. I'm just oh, desperate no. to get them in. Is that all right if I quickly... It's all right. You're going to be faster. So one is... Yeah, yeah, go for it. One is, um again, coming back to that question about leadership, do you have any... As from uh, from year one student, do you have any um, suggestions on how I can become a, a better leader? Because that's what I want to do. And then um, also thinking about the fact that it's not just one group of people's job to sort all this out. I wondered if you've got any thoughts on inclusive leadership and what everybody can do to make the situation fairer or better. Yeah, yeah. it's something about, um, so I'll, I'll go back to front. So something we can do, there's something about being our authentic self. And as a leader, there's something about being open and honest and saying, look, mm -hmm. I don't have all the answers, but what can we do together? So Amy Edmondson talks about psychological safety. So mm -hmm. how can I, as a leader, ensure that my colleagues or whoever I'm leading um, feel psychologically safe? So being open, transparent. If you don't have the answers, don't fluff it. Be honest. Get back to somebody when you say you're going to get back to somebody. The other question uh, as a leader, I, I'm a big fan of journaling. It isn't for everybody, but I've still got my first book on the first day that I landed in the NHS in 2009, in December, January, January, and I wrote in it there. And what it helps me to do is to flip back and see some of the challenges, some of the successes, because often we're so busy doing in this chaotic, busy world, we forget 
to celebrate our successes or recognize our file with come or the indicators are, you know, I'm this band, so yes, I've done well. But actually these other things around that leadership legacy, around having those conversations or whatever. So I'm a fan of reflective journaling or speaking in a recorder or, or speaking into your phone and keeping that for posterity and measuring that and celebrating your own personal successes. I think that's a powerful uh, tool to use as a leader. Yeah, yeah. well, it's funny that I was going to ask, that's what I was going to ask about. I was going to ask about leadership tips because I think as we come into the end, it's it's really important, isn't it, to... Um, and I guess on that note, I'm wondering, are there any other messages that you would give to people who are watching tonight, people who identify with you, people who, who um, you know, this is all completely new to some people listening, any take-home messages? Yeah, I think there's a, a message, and I know Brenny Brown talks about this a lot, about self-compassion, but I think there's something about giving yourself grace, giving yourself grace, Um yeah. And allowing and giving yourself permission to rest where you need to rest. If you're entitled to a break, have a break. Give yourself permission because you owe it to you. Yeah. No one else is. If they're going to see you on that trajectory, you're going to, uh, you'll be allowed and you will keep doing that. And then you're setting an expectation. So there's something about having self-compassion, having grace yeah. um, and having a good body somebody you can uh, speak to or a mentor or somebody I think that's important as well having somebody who can mirror things back to you somebody who you can trust not necessarily a colleague but somebody who you can trust and just you know have that conversation I think that's good for mental health mental well-being yeah and my final um, suggestion would be um, if you don't already to try sitting in silence himself and feeling the body. What's your body saying to you? Just in silence, doing nothing. And I know that's difficult because I've been there and sometimes I still struggle. But silence is, is literally is golden. Try it. You'll love yeah. it. <laughs> mm, I agree. Yeah. Um, Nikki, any final thoughts from you tonight? Yes, thank you. I think the thing that really stands out to me was this idea about, you know, you're listening to your body. So the idea of actually mm. just stopping being okay with silence because I think a lot of the validation that we get as in health and social care is being busy like the busier we are the more robust we are the more we go without needing a break the more the better we are and actually we're really valuable resources and we cannot treat ourselves and each other like that that can't happen it's got to stop it's not acceptable and it's it's such a strange thing to get pleasure and professional pride in like burning ourselves out it's crazy it's like so I think you know seeing that modeled right from the top saying you will get sick or the, the changes your body naturally goes through can be you know lived in and, and experienced or they can be something that really hurts you if you fight it all the time so I think that 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 message for me is the one that I thought was really helpful and um, thank you for that so I wanted to say yeah thank you thank yeah. you so um, yeah 
on a final note, Beverly, do we know when your book's going to be published? Because I'm sure there'll be people listening tonight who'll be interested in reading that. Yeah, um, I'm hoping it's going to be next year, but I couldn't say which month it depends who's going to publish it for me. <laughs> but I would yeah. say that. But once uh, once all that's up and running, I'll let you know, Vanessa, and, Brilliant. and, Nikki, and then hopefully you can uh, share that and say it's, it's out, have a read, hopefully. Brilliant. Yeah, that'd be fabulous. But yeah, I mean, it's been um, it's been brilliant having you on, and thank you for all your wisdom that you've shared. It's been really informative, and I guess I'd echo a lot of what Nikki's said. Really, for me, you know, what you've talked about is about authenticity and being real and looking after yourself. And I think they're really powerful messages, aren't they? And um, yeah, thank you for being with us, and hopefully you'll come back soon. Yeah, we'd love yeah. to have you back on a future episode. I'd love to. Thank you. And on that note, we'll say good night. Good night.